Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. And joining us this week is the Director of the Department of Community Services, Anton Krucki. Anton, I know you're a busy guy, so thanks for making some time for us. Oh, aloha, Brandy. Glad to be here. And your department, I feel like you're like the, the jack of all trades. So for those who aren't familiar, tell me what your department is in charge of. So the Department of, of Community Services is really all things human services. And so it's the central point for five points on a star. And those five points on a star are like our elderly affairs division, right? And they really were active during the, the pandemic, mm-hmm. doing feeding, keeping people connected. Now we're reorganizing it for where we're trying to go. Elderly affairs, really, that population is one of the fastest growing populations on our island and also growing faster than anywhere else in the country. And so we're really focusing on how we can do that. And we've got some great plans in place. Also in our, in our department is the Community Assistance Division, and this is really public housing. So that's where we do our Section 8 vouchers, we do our home rehab loans and, and those activities. So that's public housing, and I, and I know that we could talk about that kind of aspects and how we help people with the vouchers and, and other assistance there. I also have Work Hawaii. I think it's one of the best kept or worst kept secrets, depending <laughs> on how you look at it in the city. This, this division, led by Lay is just phenomenal. They, they've been getting some notoriety recently with their, with their job fairs, and, and they've just finished one with the vets earlier this week, you know, and they had, I understand, over 90 uh, employers there wow. looking for employment, and, and, and that's really important for our veteran community to get them engaged. That's a, that's a tough group, and I know I, I deal a lot with veteran homelessness, and, and we've had some great successes there. Work Hawaii also does other things. They do a lot of job retraining, right, and so they do job training right out of prisons. They do job training for youth, right? Across the spectrum, they, they do these things. And, and so they're preparing people for life. And we also have rent to work, which we do in that division. So it's a very active division. And I'm, I'm glad it's starting to get the visibility that it needs. We also are in charge of administering the grants and aid program that the city uh, runs. So the city budgets somewhere nine, $10 million that we distribute across the island in, in, um, in grants. So service providers, they apply for these grants. We have a commission that chooses the service providers and we administer those. And, and so that group also has taken on other projects. And so in addition to the grants and aid, they've t- taken on the relief for service providers. And we've just opened up uh, another uh, uh, bunch of funds for that. And we want people to, to apply for the years 20 and 21. Uh, if you had losses in your, in, in your group and you're a, a nonprofit, please look, go to our website and look that up because you, it really could be a, a, something that would be good for your organization because it's unrestricted funds. Mm-hmm. And so it's different than other grants that you might get. So that's very important. So also we have in our division, so I've gone through uh, grants and aid, we've talked about Work Hawaii, we've talked about elderly affairs, we've talked about c- customer assistance division. We also have the community-based development division and this is the one that's all things HUD and all the the HUD money that flows through for uh, our our block grants and also our grants to our service providers are managed by this division. This this division was formerly headed by a man named Daryl Young and um, recently he passed away from a heart attack that Mm -hmm. took his life and we miss him dearly. He was a a great man. The feedback from the community about his passion for individuals and, and people in the community has been tremendous and, and over, overwhelming and overpouring. He was a, a great family man. Uh, I think he also was a, a very active in his church. 
So he had that aspect about him, but he was a dedicated public servant. And throughout the years, throughout his life, he, that's what he's been doing, serving the public. So Daryl, shout out to you. We miss you, buddy. Yeah, um, not just the loss for this department, but I think all of the programs and all the people he touched on this island as well. Um, but looking at this department, you talked about all of those divisions. How many people do you oversee? How many personnel in? in well, I'd like to oversee more, but, <laughs> but I, I have a, we have about 180 folks in, okay. in this department, and um, we have room for more. Um, and so we're out trying to hire and, and, and bolster what we do, but that's, that's how, we, how many people we have engaged. Uh, you talked about housing. Governor Green signed his emergency proclamation. Well, he's actually signed two, one on homelessness and then recently on housing. What do those do for the city and county of Honolulu? Let's start first with the one he signed earlier on homelessness. Well, the homeless proclamation, really what it allows you to do is it, it, it tries to streamline your efforts to deploy projects. Um, most of the projects that I do, though, have federal money involved in them. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm using federal money, I can't use a state proclamation that would overstep federal regulations and rules and, and guidelines. So in most cases, it, it doesn't really apply to me, but I have a few where it does. So I have some money coming from the state at Waikiki Vista, mm -hmm. and we're looking at, at trying to do some really good programs where we can take families that are really struggling and bring them into a program, and from there, get them ready for housing and move them right upstairs or the next floor up mm -hmm. and do uh, supportive housing with them where they can stay engaged with their case managers and we can house people. So that program uh, has state funds in it, and we expect that we'll be able to use the emergency procl proclamation for that one. What about housing? What does the proclamation on housing do? Well, housing, I, I think that sometimes the, the city regs that we have are important. They, they, they provide for safe housing, uh, and they provide for good development around housing. Uh, I think that rather than, than try to pit like something that we think is important against the proclamation and whether or not one should survive the other, I think what we really should look at is how we can use the proclamation to shorten the time frame. Mm -hmm. That's the key. Not, not give up any of our standards, but shorten the time frame to get to them. And I think the proclamation has a lot of advantages there. This department, when, we first, when I first got here, there's an, a fund called the Affordable Housing Fund. And that's one half of 1% of, of tax dollars that come in, property tax. In fact, there was a, a, a measure in front of the ballot to increase that this last year, but it, it didn't pass. I think people thought it was an additional tax where it really wasn't. It was just creating a, f a larger fund. Mm -hmm. But it gets about $9 million a year. Oh, well. I, I have no idea why, but when, when I first got to this department, we had $40 million in that fund. Like why that hadn't been spent, I don't know. Right. But I got it all out. We, we, I said, well, I'm not going to just put out the $9 million. We're going to put it all out. Mm -hmm. And so we, we had some nice projects that uh, we were doing. In fact, I just went to a groundbreaking and watched the mayor dig ground at, at Halava uh, on a pro project there that uh, was coming from these funds. Right? Okay. And so we put out these funds. They were all solicited. Um, and, and so now following up this year, what am I going to do? I only have $9 million from the Affordable Housing Fund for this year, but I want to do more projects. And so what we're trying to do is I'm going to take some federal money, some home funds, and some, some state and local uh, federal relief dollars and put together overall this summer, we'll do another $40 million in solicitations for affordable housing. One of the things we do that's really creative in that is something called a performance mortgage. And so what we're trying to do in that respect, again, trying to shorten the time frame. Previously, before we got here, the affordable housing fund, the average time from awarding the money to building the project was nine years. 
And so what we, we wanted to come up with strategies that would shorten that process. And like I just talked about a lot of you, how that when we're doing the groundbreaking, that was only awarded two years ago, right? So we're really trying to speed that up. So what we're doing is this thing called a performance mortgage. And what we'll do is for a developer who has a project, but they don't have the land yet, but they have it sited, right? We'll, we'll give them that money to go buy that land. And if they get that project started in time, right, then that, that money becomes a grant to them. But if it doesn't start in time, then it's a mortgage, and then the city will still have legs into that project. So really, we don't want the mortgage. Mm -hmm. We want them to start the project. So we, we try to look at creative ways that we can do that make a difference. And one of the ways you make a difference is shortening the time frame. That kind of gets me to one of the questions submitted by one of our listeners. Her name is Josie. She says that where we're staying at, it's expensive to rent. She goes on to say she's disabled. Her husband is too. Um, Josie says she'll be getting her power chair soon, but the property manager for the place they're in now told her that her building doesn't have a handicapped unit. She did receive some of the city's rent and utility relief help six months ago, but says now she just can't afford to stay in the place um, that they're at. And she's asking if the city is expanding on its inventory for affordable either studios or one bedrooms that allow service animals um, at 30, 50 or 80 percent AMI. Just what are the options for someone like Josie? Well, I. I feel bad at all the challenges that she's having. It's difficult. Um, I think that, though, that we shouldn't accept some of the challenge she has as a given out there. There are options. Service animals are not restricted in, in our properties. And I think that, you know, people might say something like that. So people make beliefs about something, and they're not really true. Um, but in terms of finding the right place for her to rent and whether or not she could get help by vouchers, because if she's on rent release, she probably isn't mm -hmm. being helped by vouchers, she should contact us, right? And, and she could contact us and we could strategize options for her. We can look at buildings for her. Mm -hmm. But that, she's not alone, unfortunately. We have more need than we have housing. Um, and it's difficult for many people. But we will work with you and try to do our best. But um, what we really want to do is, is I, I know I just did a groundbreaking for, uh, I mean, a, a rehab for a property in Chinatown. And that's mostly all 30% uh, AMI. Mm -hmm. and, that, and the people only pay 30% of their income, whatever it is, for both rent and utilities in that property. And so there's properties like that. Holly Violu is coming on board in September, affordable housing for seniors. And that might be another aspect for her. So don't give up hope. Thanks for calling in. Contact us, and we'll do the best we can. You know, knowing the ins and outs of HUDs and how grants work and homelessness strategies, uh, where were you before this? Because this, while this is you know an opportunity for folks to learn about policy, it's it's also an opportunity to learn more about you. What prepared you for this? Where were you before this? How did how did this Anton Krucky that's sitting in front of me uh, come to be? Well, um, Brandy, that I, I'm not sure exactly what how you get to where you are, but there is a, there's always a journey, right? And you can document the journey. I, uh, I came to Hawaii uh, to work as the general manager for IBM for the Pacific. So I ran IBM's American operations here in Honolulu throughout the Pacific. I consolidated five different divisions. So I really was a business guy. But this right. is not anything like housing or, or homelessness. or <laughs> No, no, although we, we bought some buildings while I was here. Um, but that being said, uh, what it allowed me to do was it allowed me how to learn to run large organizations, mm -hmm. and, and especially in an in a area that you weren't necessarily trained in. So you have a lot of technical issues, and I could manage technical people without having to know all the technical pieces, right? And so I think that was one of the things that IBM 
uh, really did for me. The training programs there are awesome. And, and so we did our programs here. We were very successful. Um, after that, I, I, had to, I had to leave Hawaii for a little bit. Um, I had a, a son that I adopted from Moldova, and he had some special needs, and we were trying to address those needs. And, and we found a program in Seattle at the University of Washington, and I took him there. And we worked real hard at that, and um, we were able then to come back to the islands, which is really my home. Um, you know, it's funny, when, when people get announced in our cabinet, they, they ask you what high school you go to. So that doesn't really work for me, but I can <laughs> say my son went to Kaiser. <laughs> and so, you know, after all the, all the struggles he had, he, he, he's quite a story. And, and he, he did well at Kaiser. He graduated from Bellevue College, and now he's married and, and, and moving along in life. And I'm, I'm very, very uh, empowered by him to watch somebody that's had a struggle and to use all his facilities to do well. So also during that time, we founded a company called Tissue Genesis. And Tissue Genesis was a stem cell research company and located in Honolulu. And we were doing research on how we could um, take stem cells out of a person's fat tissue. And so we had a device that we had invented. And what it did was you take some fat tissue, usually about two golf balls worth. Right, so not too much. Most people said, can you take a little yeah, more while you're I'd in be, there? I'd be willing to give you more <laughs> than two golf balls of fat tissue. Yeah. So then we could put that adipose tissue in our device, and an hour later, you'd have a syringe with your stem cells in it for whatever application you were doing. So anyway, I think that that, that job, because it was a startup, it'll, it trained me to focus on things that weren't there. In other words, how do, you, how do you see something that isn't there and make it happen? So I think the IBM gave me the large organization uh, concepts of how to do that. And then, then Tissue Genesis gave me kind of a, how do, you, how do you see things that aren't there? So how can you envision things and then try to make them happen when they don't really exist? I will say one thing in terms of the large organization. One of the things that I, I, I do, and it's a little bit different here, is I have a deputy uh, director here at the at the department, uh, Edward Los Banos, and, and he has a great background. He's been a, he's a CPA. He's been the CFO for Catholic Charities. He's, he's had multiple jobs in the state, recently with the University of Hawaii. So I can, I can have somebody as a deputy be the COO of the organization, while I can focus on being the CEO and try to see where, where we should go, where sh we should be, and having full confidence that the, the pieces of, of running the operation can be taken care of by Edward. He's natural to that role. He does it well. And what it does is we don't, we don't both have to do everything, right? He can do what he does best. I can do what I ha best. And I, I'd say the one thing I try to do in all of the people I work with is trust them. And if I can trust them, we can go a long way. So that's sort of how I got here. Uh, it sounds like I arrived from the mainland, right? But I'm actually part Hawaiian. And so uh, I will tell you that my dad was in the service. He came here, he met my mom, who's half Hawaiian. And he was in the Battle of Pearl Harbor. And so, you know, sailor meets nurse. And, and so I have three sisters that were born here. I happened to be born in Japan. Uh, and then he got transferred to Washington, D.C. is how I got there. But um, I'm part Hawaiian, my heart is Hawaiian. Anton, recently we got our point-in-time count. What did that reveal to you? Well, first off, people in the point-in-time count, they, depending on their view of it, they could say it's not valid or it is valid, right? And, and when, you, when you study statistics, as long as you're doing something in a similar matter, whatever the variance is makes the product uh, valid, right? There can be a variance, but if the variance is consistent, then you have a valid product. So after we were here for the first two years, we actually reduced homelessness by 17%. And reducing homelessness by 17% is really a bigger number than it seems right. because we have a large amount of people that 
enter homelessness, right? We have people that come from outside our state. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently was in a meeting, and, and Connie Mitchell from IHS said that 30% of the people coming into her shelter are coming from outside this island. So that's quite a few that come in. So 17% is like 25%, right. reducing it one by four. And I think the way we got there was we, we took a program. Most of, the, most of the programs for homelessness focus on the most chronic homeless. There's a scale that you rate people on, and, and, it, and it's self-administered. But in there, you spend your time working on that group. And in business, you do things called market segmentation. And so in market segmentation, you look at markets based on what the buyer wants to buy. Right? And so we looked at, well, what are the homeless? What's the segmentation of homeless that don't want to be homeless? And it, we found that segment is a lot of mothers with two children, mm-hmm. right? People that, they, or they just became homeless. And how do we get them off the street and into housing so that they um, won't continue down a path that just gets worse and worse as, as, as it works out? So we developed a program called Oahu Housing Now. And we took CARES Act money that came to us with, with the whole process of the pandemic and applied it to that market segment because it wasn't part of the normal HUD money. And by doing that, we housed 300 people, 300 families, 850 people off the street all at once, right, in wow. one year. I mean, and, and, you know, to be with a mother that was so scared and her and her two children have housing, it, it's, it makes everything worth it, right? And so this year, we were up, up 3%. But when you figure that you're coming down, I mean, you're having people enter the system, just going up 3% is not that significant. But that being said, um, we lost shelter space over the last few years. We've had a couple shelters close. And so it's all about beds, right? And you need beds for people. And as you lose beds, um, it, it just makes it harder and harder. That being said, because of the program I just talked about, family homelessness is down. It's the lowest it's been in in over seven, eight years, right? And we've also reduced veteran homelessness quite a bit. So there are successes in there, but even though there are successes in there, when there's homeless, we still have homeless, and we need to work on that all we can. And and so you, you can look at segments, you can look at these things and dynamics to make something happen, but in the end, you solve each situation one person at a time. Right. Yeah. You talk about all these segments, but I assume for every, you know, six or seven tries, maybe you have one success. The success rate is, I mean, it's, it's hard to come by. So for you personally, this is tough, tough work. Is there a story that stands out to, you know, you mentioned, you know, like the, the mother with two children that you dealt with that, that keeps you going each day, that reminds you that this is tough work, but this is why it's worth it. Well, Brandy, I, I mean, you've almost said it by, by the, by the uh, type of question you've asked. Um, you know, you, when, you're, when you're doing this, and, and it is difficult, people are, um, you have citizens complaining to you, right? You have, you have people on the street complaining to you, right? You don't have the shelter space. You can't solve every situation, but you have to put it out there, and we have to come up with solutions like our vouchers for people that, that can get them housed. And yet people that have vouchers choose not to choose certain places. They don't, right? So we're, we're humans, and so we come in many, many different uh, aspects of ourselves. But what we try to do, and, and what I try to do, and this might sound funny, but one of the things that's changed in my life since I've taken this job is I never take a shower without thinking about homeless and how fortunate I am that I can do this. And if I could help someone else take, take their shower and help them along, it would be better. It's just it's changed me in that way. But when you look at something like this, it's, it's a very complex problem, right? And, and so the when you take complex problems, you can make them complicated, and that, that won't get you there. You need to take them and, and make them take complexity and make it something that's workable. 
And so if I looked at our strategy and how we would deploy ourselves, it really comes down to two, two ways of looking at the issues, right? And the first is, is how, what are the creative ways that we can come up with that would get somebody to engage the system? All the different, all the different tools I have, what could I do to get somebody to engage the system? And then the second part of that is, what resources do I have? What have I put in place that will, get, that will service those decisions? So the decisions are theirs to make, but we can come up with creative ways. We have the HONU program, which allows people to, to really get into a safe place for three or four days, eight days, nine days. And, and I know you and I once did a feeding out there on, mm -hmm. a, on Easter, right? right. And, um, and so it, it, it's a place to get people settled and then it's a triage, right? And you can get to know their story a little bit and, um, and get them into shelters, get them into housing, maybe return them to their families, all of those aspects. Um, and when I say that part about returning to family, so Honu was in Whitmore, and there, there was a gentleman that had lived under the, the Tharson Cop Bridge for over eight years, and he was a veteran, and he had never accepted services, and, and, and he never did, and, and Nikki Winters with Achieve Zero up there, she's, she does great outreach, uh, she was able to convince him to come into Honu. And he came into Honu, and after learning his story, we were able to figure out that really he was he was looking for his family, but then we found out that his family was looking for him, and they were in North Carolina, and we were able to hook them up. They were able to contact him again, and bring him home. And so after his time in Honu, we actually, you know, they they bought the tickets to send him home. And um, and there was a film I watched, and uh, they were up there, and the and the folks that worked there were playing music, and he was singing as they gave him his lays and wished him aloha back to his family. So. That's that one story that, that kind of touches me that, that you talked about. But when we, when we look at creative ways to, to get people to engage the system, one of the things that this mayor and his administration has supported is a program called CORE, and that's Crisis Outreach Response and Engagement. And what this is, is it's an alternative to a 911 HPD response to someone who's homeless. And so we, we looked around the country at different programs, and, and when we were building this, we had a committee of people put together to do the planning for it. So we had state officials at a city table helping to, to create a city program, very rare, right? And it was the beginning of collaboration, I think, with the state, which I'll talk about in a little bit how that's, how that's really grown. And in addition to that, we had other service providers there to talk to us. We had the city uh, departments there, including HPD, uh, including the fire department. Uh, and other thing we had was we had two individuals that were homeless that were on this, on this planning committee. And the, and the concept there was tell us what it's like in your world when someone's coming towards you. Right? Whether, and, they, and they talked about how they feel ignored, people uh, don't see them. Or when someone, someone is coming towards them, they're, they're frightened of them. They, they think the approach is something dangerous. And they, we work through all of that as part of our strategy. And that's how we came up with the system. And so um, the system got moved into emergency services. Jim Ireland, Dr. Ireland, and Ian Santee, they run that, that department. And, and uh, Jim and I were on the steps of Honolulu Holly. And we talked about it being in his department, and we thought it was a natural fit with them having the 911 calls that get diverted for ambulance services. And then they also have ocean safety, and then they could have another division called CORE. And so we shook hands on that, and he's taking that ball and running. And so these are the folks you'll see. They're repurposed ambulances in town, and they wear the red shirts that say CORE. They really do have a medical uh, aspect to them. And so when they approach people, it's that, you know, I'm, I'm here to help you. And they, and they physically can demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. 
right? And so, again, you, you said, you know, sometimes it's not one time you talk to somebody. Sometimes it's not three. It can be five and six times. But after you develop a relationship, then maybe you know, there's a moment in time where they have an aha moment and they say, yeah, I really would like some help. And then you can, you can again, creative ways to get people to make decisions, to engage the system, and then what resources do you have to service those decisions? And so CORE does an excellent job of that. They also are embarking, in, and we're doing a couple of areas like this called medical respite. And it's an alternative to folks. We have many people that are homeless. It, their situations are, are very severe, and so they get admitted to emergency rooms and such. And so after that, though, they're right back on the street. And so what we're trying to do is can we offer a bed to you so you can recover? Take the time to recover. And while you're taking the time to recover, we get to learn your story. And if we can learn your story, then maybe we can figure out the solution one at a time that will fit your story, and you'll make a decision to engage that the system. So we started that. They have a, a temporarily that Evil A Resource Center. Mm -hmm. um, they have 19 beds there. They're working that. We have H4 with Kalei Plama Health. We're doing medical respite there. We have other stabilization uh, beds around town that we're doing. So again, a lot of different resources trying to service these decisions. But in the end, um, we don't have enough beds. If we, if we had more beds, we could help more people. And that's what we work on every day. We work on that every day. You mentioned um, when you were talking about Honolulu, the, the feeding that we did on Easter Sunday, and one of the stories that's kind of turned up in the news for the last couple weeks now is the feeding from that church in Waikiki. Um, so what is the best strategy? What's the best way to move forward in your mind when it comes to programs like this that hand out free meals? Yeah. So I, I really appreciate the um, that, that desire that we all have as humans to help the a fellow human and so let's 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 keep that intact let's not uh, say that that's good or bad but when you're when you're an organization doing that you really want to think about the the line are you enabling or are you helping and and I think that each each area has to sort of think about that themselves um, I think churches can play a, a great role in the process. I, I've talked to, talked to many of them, and I, and I believe that we're going to get a, a good substantial program where uh, it's like adopt a family, where one church can adopt one family, and, and they would get that reference from our, our homeless database, our partners in care, and that the person would still have a caseworker. But if you could adopt this one family or person and, and, and have that group, then you could take the time to help them get their documentation together. Uh, you can be feeding them. You can get relationships with them. And maybe within the church, there'll be a landlord that with a voucher could house them, and we could have a solution. Because many times when you house somebody, we still need relationships. And if somebody's relationships were on the street, that's where their relationships are. Mm -hmm. And you put them into housing, and they feel alone. They feel you know, disengaged. Well, that's not a solution. Right, that's a disengaged person, and so I think programs like that, like a, like a church, they, they build relationships with people. So, and then when you house a person, they have a group to go to. They're, there's meetings, there's events, there's people that know them, there's people that care about them, and I think we all need relationships like that. That's not that's not a homeless issue. I think that's just human uh, issue. Um, but getting back to your particular question, again, you have to ask yourself: Are you enabling? You know, are you helping somebody along their journey? Um, we had. Uh, there's one group, River of Life Mission, that was, that was feeding in Chinatown. And, and because it was a pandemic, their, their normal process would be to have someone come in, and it's their own building, 
and they could build relationships with somebody while feeding them, and then they would they would do their 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 thing with them, uh, you know, whether it be ministry or, or whatever relationships, and help that person in their journey. But because of the pandemic, they couldn't do that. They couldn't bring them inside to feed them, and so they were they were just feeding on the street, right? And so you could see firsthand in that situation where that was an, that was enabling. It wasn't it wasn't helping someone along because the people were taking the food, eat what they want, they discard it. They, didn't really, they weren't appreciative. There was no relationship building. Mm-hmm. And so I think Rand Watermull and his board at River of Life, they were, they were willing, and I, I really commend them for this, mm-hmm. to strategize with us on, on a new model, if you will. And so they, they said, well, look, we'll, we'll stop feeding on the street, and what we'll do is we're going we're gonna to create hubs around the island. And we're going to go to those hubs with the food that we have and, and get to know the people. And I said, well, I'll support that with, with uh, maybe we could have our other folks with our showers come and, and our medical mm-hmm. people come. And you could create events around these things and, and, and work with people and take the time to work with them. And, and I think that, you know, they, they are really pleased. Their outreach is stronger. They're housing people. You know, I, I run into Rand now and then. You go, Anton, I just housed another person. You know, we're up to 12, you know. And, and that excitement wasn't there before. They, they were also trying to think about that. So I guess my response to that is, is, is think hard. I mean, I know the soup kitchen is long in our history since the Depression days, right? And churches played a great role in that and other, other soup kitchens. But that's what you have to ask yourself. It's not really a church issue. It's, it's are you enabling someone? or are you helping them along in their journey? So this next one is also a listener submitted question and I'm gonna kind of combine it because this was from five different listeners who all had the same question. And it's in regards to homeless encampments, uh, particularly near Punchbowl and Waikiki, they all had that common question of just what we can do, what more can be done. Because some said, you know, they're blocking part of the sidewalk and the homeless are minding their own business, but right next to them, you know, there could be a group that's disruptive. Um, one listener wrote in about an individual that's collecting, stealing, and collecting a bunch of bicycles. Um, so what, if anything, can, can we be doing here? Well, yeah, the, the bicycle thing's interesting. I, they, they, they spring up all over these chop shops, mm-hmm. they call them, right? And they uh, get parts and put them together. Um, you know, when that's happening, there, there, there's some industrialness in that individual. If you could capture that and, and direct it, you'd, you'd be in good shape. But the, these situations are hard. I, I would say that, um, you know, people do let us know, and please do that. We have outreach teams that will, will go out there and do that. They're not always successful. These people, many people turn down services again and again and again. Um, you know, we will try to clean up where we can. I, I would kind of urge you, uh, in, unless you're sort of trained in that area, don't engage mm-hmm. because it, it's, it's um, it could be potentially dangerous. And so I, w- I would hate for something to happen to someone. Um, let us know. And I, I know you're not shy in doing that. But some of these, these encampments, um, they've grouped together and it, and it is tough to, to work with that. And so you can't, I, my belief is, is that if you can witness that it's hard if there's a group to do something with, you don't want to enable that group to be bigger. And so I, 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 I'm of the belief that um, you, you don't want sanctioned camping uh, uh, mm-hmm. groups like that. Mm-hmm. You don't want to set aside an area and let someone say, okay, we're, we're not going to uh, try to help you. We're not going to try to do things with you. We're not going to try to clean up. Um, because it, when, once you do that, and it, it gets worse. Mm-hmm. In, in the cities, you know, I, I, 
people ask me about that and they've approached me so i've gone and i study other cities and and cities that have tried to do that is is not successful right. and in fact it makes things worse and so um uh, i i don't subscribe to that i think we just have to keep doing as many creative things as we can to get people to make a decision their decision to engage the system and then what resources can i have to to uh, service those decisions. So one of the things that we're trying to do is I'm trying to work with groups that, um, that will build transitional housing. And so we have builders that can build with prefab housing pretty quickly, uh, transitional villages. And, and these have had a great success rate around the country. And so you, when I talked about sometimes just taking someone right from the street and put them in housing, uh, that it doesn't work because a person's disengaged. These, these transitional living uh, communities, you know, a person can be there two, three years, getting themselves in a place where they, they're, they're, their things are in order that they want to be, whether it be childcare, whether it be their, their um, job training or, or the things they want to do, and also building relationships and doing some, also having the group uh, have some self-governance involved. So there's a lot that we can do. We just have to make sure that we're on a journey for the betterment of people, not enabling people. I want to make sure that all of your divisions don't get left out. And I think part of that would be job training, right? Helping someone along on that path. Um, for that division that, that helps with job training and, and work Hawaii, what's going on there and how can people find more information? What's, you know, I know that you guys recently had a graduation ceremony. Yeah. Oh, that was great. That, that, was just, that was just a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. And that was 21 uh, young people that uh, got their high school diplomas. Right. And so, you know, the, the thing about it, it was a hard journey. Each of them have a story. And I, I went out and I talked and parents were talking to me about, you know, their, their daughter and how they thought they had lost her. And, and yet this program brought her back to trying and they were all there in their groups, you know. And, and so these these folks, they these 21 people, they they had a graduation experience. I mean, it was all the lays up to their nose, the Hawaii way of graduation. Their families there celebrating it. And that kind of, of celebration and support can make all the difference in someone's life, mm-hmm. right? Um, we had one of our interns that uh, was working here. She graduated. And now she, she's applied and she's got accepted to uh, work at an airlines, right? And so she's moving along in that journey. So at Work Hawaii, you know, they put together that program. And that's just one of the type programs they do. There, um, there are other programs, these job fairs they put together. I mean, they, these things used to be small. And now they're, you know, 60 to 100 employers lo- looking for people to work. You know, we'll get 300, 400 folks to come and do those. I think the next one's on September 12th, so stay tuned for that. We're going to advertise those more than, than we have in the past. And, and visit the DCS website. And um, if you can do that, and there's multiple languages you can click on there mm-hmm. and, um, and, and go there and, and get that information. But if, if you can't do that and you're having a hard time, call our office, give us a call, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll try to guide you through that. We'd be happy to. Well, Anton, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything we missed? Wow, Brandy, I think we, we covered a lot of things. I, I think that um, the last thing I, I'd really leave with uh, is it's a real honor uh, to be in this position and to be doing this. I haven't worked in government before, um, and, and yet when I walk around this office and I see all the dedicated people trying to do the, the things that they get done every day, it really makes me feel good. Thank you. Thanks, Anton, and thank you for spending some time with us. Next week, we'll be back with Mayor Rick Blangieri right here on the One O'ahu podcast. Until then, aloha.